0: All right, it's DT Systems, dog-tested and dog-tough. You know, we like that dog in them, baby. We've been using the H2O 1820. Over the last several months, we've been playing with this unit. Our friends at Standing Stone Kennels, Ethan and Kat, they've been using it for years, and we've been playing with it. We really like it. I think for the dog trainer, the hunter, and the guy or gal who's training their dog to get ready for duck season, will really enjoy the 1820. Super reliable, super consistent, great unit for you and your dogs. H2O 1820 dog tested dog gunner kennels baby hashtag man's best kennel well it's also now hashtag man's best food crate it's freaking raccoon proof you can't get into this thing your dog can't bust into the lid and eat all the food trust me i know memphis has done it in the past she looks like a blown up pumpkin boom but not anymore we've got the gunner kennel food crate it's easy to pack easy to store, keeps food dry, which food's an investment, man. That Purina, baby, it ain't cheap anymore. So keep it dry, good, all that stuff, easy to pack, easy to store. The Gunner Kennel Food Crate, slide into DMs if you'd like to learn more. All right, our number one asked question is revolving around food force fetch whether your dog drops the bumper or duck at the edge of the water or you failed a few hunt tests because the dog monkeys with the birds or won't pick up a bird let me help you help your dog bunch of different breeds bunch of different personalities start to finish teaching you how to do it links in the description What's going on everybody? Welcome to another episode of Lone Ducks Gun Dog Chronicles. We've got an exciting episode coming up, but first, let us thank our sponsors. Yukonuba Sporting Dog, the blend that fuels our pups. From their 30-20, their adult blend, their puppy blend, I'm very pleased with how our dogs are performing on it. Their coats are looking good, their teeth are looking good. They've got a formula for you, so... Try it out, test it out, and feel good that you're fueling your dog right. Next up is Gunner Kennels, the safest kennel for you and your dog. So if you're traveling up and down the road, and let's be honest here, everybody, it's duck season. We're traveling. We're hunting. We're grinding. We're up early. We're up late. We are driving to Arkansas. We're going to the coast. We're going here. We're going there, and our dogs are over the road what happens if it happens you're not expecting a car accident but you've got your dog in a gunner kennel the safest kennel on the road you're gonna be all right this is your family member this is your friend protect them merry christmas to you and your dog get them a gunner kennel and a little quick shout out to the lone d the lone duck outfitters our website right now is hosting a Black Lab Friday sale. Everything on the site is 10% off. Um, use the code Black Lab Friday. It's going to run till December 7th, 2019. Um, t-shirts, hats, if you guys enjoy this podcast, if you reach out to me on Instagram for training questions, do us a solid. Get yourself a hat, get yourself a T-shirt, maybe a little hoodie. Maybe a little slippery. We got six left in stock, so you better hustle up. 10% off Black Lab Friday, baby. Next up, Waypoint Outdoor Collective. This is the group that helps us host our podcast, and they've got other outdoor podcasts and influencers on their program. So if you'd like to learn more, and if you're into other outdoor activities like fishing, hunting deer, whatnot, deers plural you like hunting deers then check out waypoint outdoor collective and now let's get into the show i'm super excited to introduce you all to a good friend of mine a mentor to many and all someone who's been a pioneer a pioneer excuse me in our sport she is the first of many and will be the first of many in the future her name is trish jagoda from silverbrook kennels Trish, welcome to our show, and tell everybody a little bit about yourself.
1: Oh, wow. So, (laughs) you know, I've been all my life training dogs, so I can't even really remember. Probably before you were born, Owens, uh, I started training dogs. Let's see. I graduated from high school in 1975. So when were you born? 87. 87. Okay, there you go. So I could be like your grandmother or something like that. And um, 75 from high school, went to art school, of all things, at the Corcoran Gallery of Art in Washington. My mother wanted to know when I was really going to get a job. Um, all these years, even on my website, I say, my mother still wants to know when I'm going to get a real job. And it's just something when I was a kid, I used to ride horses and compete, and there was always something. When I was a kid, I was on our big screen porch in front of our house teaching my dog how to jump over jumps and say prayers at the pic- at, at the picnic table outside, and uh, it's something I never thought of, and of course never thought that I would make my life mission, um, owning a kennel, training dogs, but... She's forty-two years later. I wouldn't know what else to do. I couldn't work inside. I absolutely couldn't do that. Unless I was where you are, then I would think about it. <laughs> but where, where are you from? I'm in Virginia, Fredericksburg, gotcha. and uh, I was born in Beaufort, South Carolina. So that's what brings me down. Uh, half the year to South Carolina because I just feel that in my blood. Plus, it does make your blood warm when you're down there.
0: Absolutely. And
1: even in January and February, you know, it's 45 degrees. I mean, anybody can handle that working outside and rarely any kind of snow or anything down there. But, uh, you know, Virginia is pretty good too. We can work a dog, occasional watermark and stuff, even in the time. We don't get typically frozen water here but uh so you know after college after art school and went to the corcoran gallery as i told you in dc and graduated from there and went to work in my family business where we hated it my brother and i jack (laughs) who founded nara um was the president of nara and he and i just looked at each other one day after my dad died he looked at me and i looked at him and he said I hate this place. Mm -hmm. And I said, Let's sell it. So he said, I'm all over it. We're out of here. So both of us then decided that's what we were gonna do, train dogs. I used to do it at lunchtime when I was, you know, twenty years old outside my dad's business and train my dogs, bring them to work and train other people's dogs while I was working for my dad. So
0: that's cool. Then I
1: started doing that.
0: I want to back up real quick. So when I was in high school, and I still love to do it, I I enjoy art. What was your forte?
1: Photography. Really? But, you know, the Corcoran Gallery, You, um, in order to be accepted, you have to submit a portfolio, and it's drawings. Even though you're going to major in photography there, you have to submit drawings to be Um, back then they were, uh, in the top six art schools in the country. Wow. And you had to be accepted that way too. And I got that from my dad. I mean, even today, if I'm on the phone and before we're done here, I'm on the phone, I'm going to be sitting doodling and I'll doodle dogs, people, you know, stuff I'm thinking about. And I just sit, my scratch papers are so interesting in themselves. You know, you can analyze me by my scratch papers.
0: That's, so I'm at the exact same way. Hold on one second, Trish. So, Trish, I'm wondering if, how, uh, if you, like, what did, What was your portfolio look like?
1: Mm, Do you Must what, have been pretty good. I got accepted. <laughs> <laughs> I did. See, I'm from Fredericksburg, you know, very historic city. I did, and I love architecture. So I did a lot of, um, you guys there? Yep. At the time, I was really big – just coming out of art school, I got a scholarship to VCU in Richmond um from high school, and I was really big in perspective then. So I was real interested in the lines of buildings and things like that, so I used a lot of that in my portfolio. Plus, of course, guess what? Dogs I was just going to say. I I drew pictures of that sort of thing, too, so.
0: That's cool. My favorite things, I loved watercolor and acrylic, and I liked painting, like, rustic barns and landscape, and then I I love doodling, too, so I've got, like, a couple classic caricatures that I will whip up for my nieces, and Uh they all look the same, basically, but. But I, yeah, like
1: the guy that does the balloon things.
0: Absolutely, I and I've hands only them got a to few, kids.
1: They all look alike.
0: I only got a few tricks up my sleeve, but those were my favorite things to draw, and they're my favorite pictures. Yeah. And you know, whatever the case may be, but I always will stop and look at like an old barn and be like, "Dang, that's cool."
1: That barn going down to where we stay um, in Pulaski, on the right hand side. It's vacant now, but there was always a horse in the window. Cool. And every year, every morning going over to Carol's, the horse would have its head out the window. And last year it was gone. Mm. And we talked about it every time we went by.
0: So to give everybody a little bit of a background on what she's talking about, Trish summers for, what, five, six weeks mm-hmm. at the training grounds that I train at. Um, so I, I really got to know her this summer and at the master national on like an another level a a real friendship actually um versus no bob
1: that's just what you think
0: well i can think that you can think what you want
1: (laughs) i'm just playing so
0: it, it it's pretty cool that she can we all in this industry can kind of travel to and fro and we talked about the blaine was on our podcast um Trish. And we talked about the camaraderie and the family and the friendships we make in our industry that make it pretty special. The fact that you can come up to New York and hang out at Carol's and train with us here. And then, you know, we see you in South Carolina and, you know, we'll catch you in Virginia and all, all over the place. We, we run into each other and yes, it's always a fun reunite type of thing when, when we catch up.
1: Absolutely. And that's what has kept me doing this all this time is the people. Honest to God, it's the people. It, it's the dogs, but um it's the people that go with it. And, you know, I always laugh about it, the clients and how frustrating sometimes that can be. But they're just your bosses. So, you know, you, you get frustrated at bosses anytime. Sure. But, um, you know, the people are what make this sport and. I'm going to be honest with you. The fact that, um, we, we run hunt tests where the, you know, there's not a winner. So I can qualify. You can qualify. In fact, a hundred percent of the dogs could qualify technically and we're all happy for each other yep. because, you know, if I win, that's all I care about. And as a pro, all I care about is making that phone call. Where I say your dog did really well because it's the worst phone call that you have to make when you have to tell somebody their dog failed.
0: It, I struggle with it every time. Mm-hmm. I take yep. it really hard, actually.
1: Well, it's a direct reflection on you, and they take it that way because they're paying you to get that ribbon. And when you don't, it's your fault to them. Yep. It's
0: hard. It is. It's really hard. Um, All right, so let's dig back into the family business. So you and Jack, your brother, were working for the family business. What was that?
1: The name of it was All-American Sports Awards, and we actually manufactured awards, trophies, plaques. We had a, a huge wood shop in the back, and we distributed nationally. And then we had a showroom where we did, local things. And we used to do all of NARA's ribbons and ribbons for all the, most of the East coast field trials at that time. Cause there weren't hunt tests back then. Really? Yeah. And that's a good I hookup found, to have. Pardon me.
0: That's a pretty good hookup to have. Uh, oh
1: yeah. Yeah. Nice. Well, I found the other day, this is odd because I've been looking for it for a long time. I found the first hunt test ribbon or bunch of ribbons that were ever made. So NARA and AKC had their first joint hunt test together when AKC was contemplating buying the rule book from NARA. Really? Yeah, and I found a ribbon from it. It's got the AKC logo in the round part of the rosette and NARA logo on the streamer in the middle going down the front. That's so cool. Yeah. I'll send you a picture of it. And I was telling Russ Revis about it. And, um, I told him, I said, I have it somewhere. And so, uh, we were, I was talking to my brother one night and he said, are, do you, are you aware that you're the first hunt test competitor ever? And I said, what, what are you talking about? He said, you ran the first dog in that event. And I remember back then, I had totally forgot it. So technically, you're talking to, according to Jack, and and I do remember some of this now, um, he said, you are the first hunt test, the first person to ever stand at the line at a hunt test. No way. Kind of cool.
0: That's not kind of cool, Trish. That's extremely cool. And the fact that you chased it and continued it on, as a career and a passion and we're going to get into more of what you do for our sport, but that's extremely cool.
1: Well, it wasn't easy back then. Let me tell you, just like, you know, you hear the stories of we had to walk five miles to school every day and nobody gave us any shoes and all that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. Back then um, in the NARA days, you had quarter and flush and a trail landmarks watermarks and women did not do that period there wasn't any discussion women didn't do it and because i tagged along you know behind my brother's shirt tail all the time i would just get in the truck and go with him every weekend so i was one of the quote unquote one of the guys every weekend nobody ever you know because my brother he probably beat the crap out of anybody that said anything to me for going But back then, very few, maybe some wives went, but I can't even remember any women that handled dogs. So when I started doing it, I was really the only one I could think of. And so then uh, I started judging. And then, of course, I was the first woman to judge Nara. And then I was the first woman to judge the Nara Invitational out in Oregon. the that year it was at Save Island, and uh, so, you know, I was sort of the first woman to do a lot of things, only because women didn't do that.
0: Right. And right. then,
1: of course, I'm the first woman field rep, which that's one of the things that gives me, uh, I have a lot of pride in in my latest uh, jo- part time job. You know, um, part I do it, it means a lot.
0: Describe that to people. Um, You're an AKC rep for Hunt Test. Describe what that job is, please.
1: Oh, boy. There's a lot more to it. Uh, Last two weekends ago, I went to a Hunt Test over here by my house. It was 15 minutes from my house, ironically. And when I pulled up, they were joking, kind of. I pulled up. Two people turned around and said, she's here. the, The cops are here. And I said, oh, for Pete's sakes, knock it off, you guys. Just right. get out in the field, go. And it's not that at all. A lot of people think, oh, my God, the field reps here. Um, everybody start jogging in place. Well, first of all, you know me better than that. I'm not like that anyway. But secondly, it's really not why AKC employs us. They want us to be there to make it better, not to bust people's chops. And I got to tell you, one of the best hunt tests I ever went to made my job so pleasurable is Finger Lakes this past summer. Really? I wrote a glowing review. You have to write a really detailed report, like everything the junior, senior, and master did, every series, which way the birds were thrown, how how long they were, what was the scenario, who were the judges, what did they say. Uh, how many dogs qualified and then what i do is work with the club then to say okay while finger lakes ran this event now here are some things i think you could do better or during the event hey guys come on you can't do that you have to have a shot flyer and master right. you know so come on uh you got to shoot a flyer as opposed to writing somebody up for not doing it um i just am there to advise and help and say the rule book states xyz and so you need to think about doing this and uh finger lakes was of course i i haven't been a rep for uh, uh right at a year now and uh almost every club that i go to has something even some little things or things that judges did or said that I can help them with I could not find one thing and I wasn't looking for negativity but none of it jumped in my lap at finger lakes and I even in my report I said it was the nicest event I ever attended even going down to the property I mean what a beautiful piece of property and so beautifully sculpted and you know everybody's there to help carol you know how that is yes but it was great. And so that's what I do. Just go and help. Remind people. A lot of times people say, hey, do you have a rule book? I need to look up something. I can say a lot of times I can say, well, it's over there in the master's you know, category. I think I remember it on a right side of the page and I'll flip through. There it is and show them what they need to know so that we can work through whatever problem they're having. So very cool. That's basically a Advisor.
0: Now, I got a little question. This is a side note. This is just for me because I don't think anyone else cares, but I care. So there's uh, a few clubs that I run master tests where the landowner won't allow live gunfire. Is there a clause Mm -hmm. in the rule book for that? Yes. Okay.
1: Yeah. So that's why they get away with it. Yeah, it's under the procedures, and it's at the bottom right-hand page, and it goes from the bottom – of that right page to around to the other page, top left. And in that segment, it says uh, that a hunt test will, should, not should, wait a minute, shall, I think it is. A hunt test shall, uh, senior and master, shall have a live flyer and that it's required. And then you flip the page and it says, unless there's a local law or a landowner um you know regulation gotcha so that's how they can't do it yeah cool Cool. but otherwise uh, otherwise it's a requirement
0: cool let's take us back to the early nara days and early akc hunt test days what were they like i mean now i feel if i can paint a picture to someone who maybe hasn't been there it's generally extremely well run generally there's signs all across the town pointing you in the direction of this is where this test is this is where this test is uh headquarters is over here and there's marshals telling you where to go and everything is extremely organized what was it like back in the day was it you know how many people were running um what was the atmosphere like
1: well, back then, because it wasn't a nationwide thing in the startup years, there were clubs across the country as it, you know, started popping up. But in the early time, what you had was a different mentality. When you go to hunt tests now, you can stand around and you'll hear a pocket of people talking about hunting season or the retrieve this dog made or the kind of gun they have. And then another pocket of them will be talking about their show dog when they, uh, you know, won in the show ring or something like that and obedience, um, all that. Well, back then, all they talked about was hunting, their hunting dog, what kind of boat they have, um, all this, what guns they shoot, what they shot out of those guns, you know, everything because it was new. So the people that attended these, you know new things were literally hunters because they were the only ones that had gun dogs right, so you either had down here the uh just field trials where you had some of these big clubs that ran every weekend for you know first through fourth and jams, and so you had four maybe six people out of sixty to a hundred dogs entered that got any kind of recognition at all. So now all of a sudden this new sport opens up where Joe next door can take his gun dog that really isn't very steady. It can only retrieve one bird at a time. He can go run what was called started, which is the equivalent of junior now in AKC. So he could go hold the dog on the lead. Uh, didn't have to be steady. Somebody blow a call, shoot a gun out in the field and throw a bird. The dog just had to go get it and bring it back, which is very similar to what he did in the field for it. Sure. Then you had the next level, just like we have now, senior and master. But then you had those guys that had that dog that was steady and could do a double and run a blind. Well, it was ugly at first. Let me tell you, it was ugly. It just reminds me of looking back at like old football games where they had the you know, the leather helmets and and the padding sucked and it looked old fashioned like you think of Babe Ruth or that sign in Carol's porta potty. Sure, yeah. You know, that's what it all looked like. It was similar. You saw these guys in this old style camo. Have you ever heard of tree bark camo?
0: No, I don't think so.
1: Okay, you should look it up. Tree bark camo. It was a brand of camo that sponsored NARA back then. Everybody had tree bark camo. And what it looked like is if you took a picture of bark on a tree, and that's what it looked like. <laughs> so if you you know could do it from that picture and paste it all over your your coat, that's what it looked like. And it was good camo nowadays if you see tree bark you laugh at somebody for still wearing that
0: yeah we're all sick of uh, and oh yeah how much can you afford and getting fancy that's right it. yep
1: and i'm guilty of it sure. but i still have a couple of uh like uh really good bibs and things like that that i wear that i only wear for training when nobody sees me because i get made fun of so bad what is that
0: that's fantastic <laughs> that's so awesome yeah How, how do you think training has evolved from those early days you know some of the techniques that were used that would never you know fly today can can we go back to i don't know maybe it's discretionary on your end but some of the things is like i can't believe we did that or people did that and now look how evolved we are
1: well i can think of one big one that we were talking about not long ago. Uh, Somebody said, oh, I got to go get my OFA done. And uh, we were just talking about, yeah, got to be two and uh, well, the hips on that dog and things like that. And I said, wow, that just reminds me back in the 70s and earlier when they were first doing OFAs, they would not allow your dog, or the OFA wouldn't pass on your dog if you had any, get this now, buckshot in your dog's ass. (laughs) Because there were no collars back then, and if you needed to force your dog off the line and it was a little piggy or something, they shot it with buckshot, and I'll tell you what, it went. Now, not me. You would never see me do that, but that was one thing where uh, OFA got wind of it, and if there was even one little BB in a dog's butt anywhere, in the skin anywhere, you didn't pass OFA. I don't care if they were a field champion. Wow. And those are things you just don't even hear about that anymore.
0: No, no. Then
1: the other thing, I was talking to Missy Lemoy about this, I still have a transmitter from the very first Tritronics transmitter that was ever made. So who's got a puppy in a crate?
0: Oh, that's Kevin's group of puppies. They all go home uh, tomorrow and Saturday. It's funny oh, that's you can the, hear them. the little downstairs. ones. Yeah, yeah, the little babies. Yeah.
1: Um, so anyway, the transmitters, okay, you know the Tritronics? I don't know which you use, but the Tritronics uh, or the Garmin now, 550s, they're that cylindrical shape? Yep. Well, they were always that shape when they came out. So those are just retro. I mean, that's what the shape of them always was, that cylinder. Same height and everything. But they used to be this bizarre gold, um, almost spray-painted look, um, like a anodized look or something. And then you had to screw the antenna in when you took it out of your little box, like a little pistol box. Yep. You took it out of that, and the antenna telescopically, you had to to pull it up yourself about six feet in the air. And you're using this transmitter with the antenna that goes probably, if you're six feet tall, another six feet, 12 feet in the air. No way. And talking about, I mean, I never thought anything of it because that's what we did. And the dog collar had a same sort of deal on it. And it would telescope up like 12 inches from the dog's neck and it got broken all the time
0: did it have multiple levels or was it could you vary the stimulation
1: oh no first collars was just a hard ass kick him in the butt you might as well shoot him with buckshot kind of burned really and there was no collar condition well no i take that back there was collar conditioning because when you burn the dog, they learn they never freaking did that again. Right. And you didn't have a golden that was sensitive. You put it on everybody. And that golden was washed up in a day.
0: Right. So that uh, describe that. So washing out a dog means they don't make the program. They aren't going to do the work. You had to have gone. And I mean you as in like everybody back then, not you personally, but like. I, I, there's an old timer that I grew up with. He mentored my father and he gave me my first book of dog encyclopedia. Um, and really kind of I cherish those memories and it helped form, you know, my love for dogs, but he washed out a lot of English pointers and it was hard training and it was hard on dogs. And if they didn't make it, they didn't make it. They got, that's right put out uh to the pasture so to speak or rehomed and uh what was that like i mean just describe it i guess i i it's different now you know we work them through it
1: oh well now you know i was just thinking uh i was listening to you had the force fetch one in two parts yep that you did um and i started listening to one of those this afternoon and then i got to thinking how i force And uh, I incorporate the collar, which I'll just run over this real quick because it's not really for this segment. But uh, I incorporate the collar soon into my forcing. Uh, I teach hold really well first, and then I do this weird thing that I don't think anybody does. Instead of pinching the ear in the beginning, I have my hand with my palm down over his muzzle, And my fingers will pinch his lip against his canine. And because it's right there where you want the response to happen, you then put the dowel or the bumper or whatever you're using. When the dog opens his mouth in discomfort, you put the bumper in. But you're right there at the spot where the dog understands. Right here, I'm prying your mouth open. It happens to hurt, so you're going to still go, ow, and open your mouth but it teaches them i'm not kidding you in three or four days where an ear pinch is longer than that to get them to go to the ground and stuff mm-hmm. but once i teach the hold with it then i go back on so we're going back to the collar thing i go back on a one or a two with the collar and i'll do the thing over their canine and then hold down a one or a two on the collar because it's just uncomfortable just enough like you're pinching somebody's arm right where they want to get away from it and because I'm I uh, did the mouth first and said fetch they're already a little conditioned to fetch I can have a dog picking up off the ground with a collar burn conditioned in a week because of well I'm gonna say because of tritronics because that's what I use um, I don't think I've used other collars, but I've never owned myself anything but a Tritronics, and I'm just a Chevy person and a Tritronics person, if you know what I mean.
0: I got you. So, you. So if you did listen to the podcast, that's cool. And if anyone wants to go back and listen to my description of how I do it, I don't do a lot of hold, but you do. So if you were to give a – three minute synopsis of something that is not easy to do in three minutes. Like how long are you spending on hold? If if that's your mainstay
1: three or four days, but I'm not nice about it. It's not this sweet little hold or, you know, the glove in the mouth and then the dog can't, you know, uh, bite down on your hand and all that, it's pry the mouth open. I'm not asking you, I'm telling you. Um, With one hand, I'm holding them with the other, or usually I have them between my legs facing away from me Mm -hmm. so they can't move, and I just hold them with my legs. Go over their muzzle, pry their mouth open. So in essence, I'm ear pinching, but I'm lip pinching.
0: Right. I'm with
1: you. So I am pinching. I'm conditioning for the response still. But then when they open, I'll close their mouth down over the dowel and tap. And a little harder than a tap, I'm like, don't drop that.
0: <laughs> I wouldn't drop it.
1: Of course, they don't. But in the beginning, they do a little bit. Sure. And I, I probably have them drop it three times, which is... For most people, pretty abnormal. Usually, it's a lot of dropping. I don't walk them at all until they're dependably holding at the sit, which is two days maybe. And when they drop, I'll cuff them under the chin. Yep. Fairly good so that's so they understand that that wasn't a good thing for them. Put it back in, but I pinch to put it back in. Pinch over the uh, mouth, uh, you know, the muzzle again. Yep. Put it back in and reiterate, hold it. Now I say hold it instead of hold because I want fetch to be a single syllable. Get it. Dig a hold of China if you have to, but get that bird. So fetch is a dart in the wall response I want you to have. So fetch is pick it up. Hold it is a more comforting. You've got it. You got that. Good job. Hold it. And so that's why I don't go hold because it's another single syllable. It's a desperate sounding word. I'm with you. So so I make them, you know, fetch, hold it. Just like I do my heel and here, I'll do heel and I'll go heel. Here. So a right turn is here. Heel is the left, and I can dance with those dogs in the field just going heel, here, heel, heel, all the way around, spin around me, and I'm spinning myself on my left foot, on the ball of the foot. Stop, sit, here, and they're coming back around. So it's all in your enunciation, which also makes them understand what you're asking of them.
0: I love it. I love it. I mean, you've been doing this so long, reading dogs, practicing, learning, watching how they react. One thing I want to touch on is the caliber of dog back in the day when you started to today. How would you describe the difference in a well-bred Labrador Retriever from 1980 to a well-bred Labrador Retriever in 2019.
1: Well, probably in 1970, a well-bred Labrador Retriever was bigger, hunkier, like my dog Westwind's Bull Tiger. Okay, the puppies that I run today because I have frozen semen from him. Puppies I run today, you've seen them, are Big Leo, 85, 95 pounds. Yep. Um, they're big, hunky dogs, but the athleticism in them, because I'm bringing back some of the young blood into it, um, it they're just phenomenal creatures. So the the dogs back in the 70s and 80s were these bigger all um, still leggy, I'm not talking big like show dogs, but like Michael Jordan looking guys. Not trying to think. You know, not these little little pocket labs you're seeing today.
0: Yeah, not 40 pounders.
1: Yeah. You saw dogs that didn't have those little flat faces. They had a break in their face. Yep. They had a decent looking look to them and they were athletic. But You can take that 40-pounder today that's got speed, like that dart in the wall I was saying. They are speed demons. They're probably sometimes a little too exuberant about their job. Yep. Back then, they had good drive, but they were very controllable. And don't forget, these were the average guys in hunt tests. These were the average guys' hunting dogs. They weren't great competitors, just like you look back in the 70s at field trial dogs. The field trials in the 70s were probably, I'd have to really think back at the degree of difficulty of them, but they weren't a lot different than like a real high-level qualifying. They weren't huge in degree of difficulty like you're seeing 400 yard stuff today I and what they expect of them so in nara and in the gun dog programs um back then um that was before akc even came around so in the nara program you were looking at these dogs that quote unquote the were fetch them up dogs throw a throw a, a shotgun shell out there Right. to get the dog to get in the vicinity of where the bird was down because they hardly sat on a whistle. Right, right, right. And, you know, we had a, a Virginia State gundog championship in 78 or something like that. One of the criteria was, or the rules were, you were able, allowed, to throw a shotgun shell if you needed to to get the dog to pick the bird up. You're kidding. I'm not kidding. And the dog that placed... I remember watching the guy throw a shotgun shell to get the dog to get over in a whole different quadrant where he needed him to go to, to get the bird and he took a placement I don't remember what he took but he was up there in the seconds and thirds and the guy that won it probably didn't handle right but um you used to be able to do that in the gun dog competitions cuz that's what a lot of hunters do the dogs aren't good enough so you were taking dogs out of the hunting scenarios, either bird hunters or guys that did both, and combining them into the NARA program where they did do retriever work and bird hunting work, where you, you know, would do the, the um, quarter and flush and the trails, and they would bring these excellent hunting dogs in. They would, nose-wise, and what was expected of those dogs would blow you away by today's standards. Really? Uh nose wise, these dogs could find. I'm t- I'm telling you, you could you could bloody a bird or something, and then take it out of the field and send the dog on a trail. Put all the birds away. Don't even have them out in the field. That dog would go out there in that field and find those um, that bloody spot or feathers pulled. If you drug that thing a hundred, hundred and fifty yards. I've seen trails that they did that would blow you away. That dogs these days, I don't know if they're even capable of understanding them.
0: I think that's one of the things that I almost wish an AKC master test would incorporate. Because we're supposed to be training a great hunting dog. Honor
1: your nose.
0: Right. Yet, to get the discipline... In blind retrieves that we expect, knowing them off of marks, keyholes, under the arcs, tight to the gun. The real technically savvy blind running dogs can't trust their nose. They have to trust you and turn that off. And I think I know that there's a happy medium, right? I know there is between a great hunting dog and a great competitor in our game. But I do think overall, like for instance, Memphis, my female, I didn't do any trailing. I didn't do, I've, she's still to this day, I don't think has pheasant hunted because I didn't want her to trust her nose. I wanted her to take mm-hmm. good, clean, crisp lines where I told her, when I told her, how I told her and in an AKC master test, she's fantastic. And, but in the duck blind, there are instances where like normal, my old dog, I'd be like, Hey, hunt it up. And he he would find crippled ducks under logs, you know, 200 yards away on our walk out, He'd find a wood duck that we shot and crippled and couldn't find, you know, she doesn't have that skill. And it's because I didn't necessarily want her to have that skill in order to compete. Do you think that, I mean, what is your thought on that?
1: I used to have the opinion that the AKC hunt tests were nothing but a quote-unquote derated rated field trial. I don't so much anymore because I'm more involved. I see where they're going with it. And AKC really does advocate, the rule book says it, that they want the dog to be able to mark and find the bird. So mark with their eyes. Find the bird with their eyes. In other words, get out there with their eyes, and then once you get to the spot, transfer that to your eyes and your nose, and try to find the bird like they would for you in a uh, in a hunting scenario. Sure. So what I what I didn't realize before is that AKC really does want judges and competitors to put more emphasis on the marking segment of, let's just call it a master test of uh, in a master series. They sort of want the judges to put more emphasis on the three marks that that dog is running and the score that that dog would get. And, I could find it in the rule book I just can't think of the exact section it's in now but they really do advocate for marking being your paramount uh you know thing that you want the dog to be able to do.
0: Yeah, their main skill needs to be marking basically.
1: Mhm. Yeah. So what you just said is almost counterproductive to that. You're lucky you've got a dog that with the control that you put into her Will let herself be sort of in her mind turned loose when she gets out there and sort of be able to freelance enough to go find the bird without turning around and popping, looking for help in some way or not staying in the area and hunting and want to leave the area and, you know, look elsewhere. So, um, with me, I make sure that the young ones are, before they're even taught blind work, are really good, as they can be for their level, at marking and being really serious about staying in an area of a fall as a young dog. I've even peppered the area or put six or eight birds out in an area of a fall so when they get there, boom, they got the bird. It might not be the bird that was just thrown out of that winger for them, but they got a bird that was two feet from it that they didn't have to look for. Then what did they do? They got satisfaction out of thinking that they went out there and found that bird on their own. Right. And so you develop marking that way.
0: Confidence in their marking.
1: And that, yeah.
0: That's pretty cool. I'm not sure how to segue that into another question. I got to think about it for a second. But I guess what I'd like to do is break down, you know, so many of our listeners and we talked about it before the podcast, but so many of our listeners are new to the sport and you've been in the sport for so long. What kind of advice can you give someone with their first dog and they've never been to a test or, you know, they're, they're advancing through the junior going to senior what can you give people advice on to prepare them for joining a a hunt test
1: join a club join a club where you can now that's there's there's two sides to that join a club where you can find other people um that are doing the same thing trying to train their own dog are making the same mistakes you are that can maybe help you then you've got The guy in the club that thinks he's the master dog trainer who's, you know, never really trained anything over a senior dog who's running the whole thing and is going to tell everybody how to do it. So you have to be careful for that, that you get good advice. But you're at least going out with a group of people, being able to have your dog get some what looks like a little more real life retrieves rather than you having your wife throw a bird out in the field, she doesn't want to stand there when blow a duck call and shoot a gun and throw a bird. She hates it. But you're doing it with your one dog. It's not giving the dog the the real life look and feel of either hunting or a hunt test. Right. So join a club. Call there's some people that are gonna poo poo this. Call a pro that's local because if they're like me and you, I know you're this way and some are not, but I welcome anybody's car that pulls up behind me and wants to get out of their car and watch or run. How many times have you seen me turn around and go, hey, you got a dog you want to run? Yep. Go there, watch. Even if you sit in a chair and watch those people train their dogs, go pick their brains, Uh, work for them, scoop poop and go throw birds for them and then they'll help you and give you tips. That's a great way if you can get somebody locally to do that. Absolutely. Um, go to a hunt test. I don't know if you've seen the new junior video that we put out.
0: You know, I'm a little disappointed. I wasn't highlighted in that video. I tried to be in the video, and... uh The camera guy wouldn't, you know, hit me up, you know?
1: Yeah. The reason for that was that you shaved your mustache that day and we (laughs) didn't want to horrify everybody.
0: I was waiting for your mustache comment.
1: Yeah. So we didn't ask you because we were afraid that any little kids in the area might get scared.
0: That's right. So pedophile Bob on the lookout. Yeah.
1: yeah. But there is an AKC video on the junior hunt test program. Excellent to watch. And it. It just goes through what the expectations are um that kids are welcome there. It's a family thing. Go there, you learn so much by going and just watching junior senior and master, but go and sit at the junior stake, watch what your dog will have to do right read, read books, and I don't usually advocate the videos because um some of the early videos, and God, my lord, he's gonna kill me for this. They're great videos, but all those dogs were trained dogs in the videos. It's not showing people the pitfalls of forcing, the pitfalls of collar conditioning. So the videos are great to show you what a finished dog looks like doing it, but it doesn't show you how to go through the channels of doing it unless you contact somebody that can help you.
0: That's a really good point, and and I get a lot of that feedback You know, and partially, Trish, I do this podcast and I do the Instagram and all that stuff to help people, right? Like, we're here to help people. And the number one thing that everyone comments on is these videos are showing a dog that already does it right. Mine's not doing it right. What do I do? Right. Why isn't my dog being steady? Why is my dog whining? Why is my dog, you know, spinning in three circles before it goes to the back pile? Yep. You know, they don't show you that in the videos, and I think you're, you hit the nail on the head that if you can find a reputable trainer in your area within an hour drive, there's got to be someone, and, and go on a Saturday and work with them. And I yep. think you also hit the nail on the head that join a club, but also keep your head on a swivel for the know-it-all whose dog looks not so good. You know, yeah. take advice from people whose dog looks like you want that your dog to look like. How did they no. get there?
1: But take your dog there. You know, you don't even have to be a member of the club. Take your dog out there that day, meet the people. That's how you get your foot in the door anyway. And anything.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. You just got to put yourself out there. Yeah. Do you have other parting advice for a, a new you know you train gun dogs you you train high level competition dogs for someone who's entering their dog into their first hunting season what are some pitfalls that you have found over the years that they you know that we need to be aware of people need to be aware of uh
1: hunting season or hunt test season
0: hunting season that's well, i would say most of our listeners are probably hunters that want to dabble in hunt test but you know they're hunting
1: Yep. Well, I'll tell you the first and foremost that just chaps. Oh, my God, I can't stand it is my dog is gun shy. Why is he gun shy? They're not born that way. Those puppies that I hear in the background are not gun shy. You're right. OK, because the idiot shot a gun over his head. He left his townhouse that morning, put the dog in his Porsche and brought it to the the you know, the pond that they all are meeting at. The the dog's never heard a gun before, and he's going to take his gun dog, you know, that he trained himself out to the marsh and hunt, and the dog is ruined in his first hunt because he's scared to death. Right. So, for God's sakes, condition your dog to a gun. How do you condition
0: a dog to a gun? How? Yep.
1: Well, you know, shoot a gun... First of all, I live down here next to, it's called the Crucible, which is a place that, uh, tests night vision, um, optics and they're shooting all night long. We laugh about the fact that my puppies are already conditioned to gunshots because they're, you know, in the springtime and in the summertime, they're outside in the yard and they hear these guns and, you know, rapid fire stuff going off. And they don't think a thing of it, right. but it's in the distance. So at, in the distance or get a popper like a starter gun and uh, get a lesser volume shot and put it in it and shoot around your puppies and throw things, throw bowls down, throw things that are loud down around your puppies and see what they do in the beginning. They flip out, they fall over, they fall down. Until the dogs get used to it. So do it at a low level and then shoot closer and closer until the dog thinks when they hear the shot that it's a great thing and they're hyped up, not scared to death and running for your car.
0: Absolutely. Yeah, that's how I do it. Start far away so the sound is minimal and I'm Mm -hmm. introducing something awesome like fun bumpers. Um, We did we banged pots and pans and clanged the bowl when it was feeding time. And the louder noises was the symbol to them that Pavlov's theory, right. Of something awesome is about to happen. That's right. Um, The other thing is for me, and you can jump in, you know, on their first few hunts, it shouldn't be the civil war. You're not taking your six buddies out to show off your new dog, and six times three is, I'm not good at math, Kev, help me out, 18. 18. 18. 18 rounds going off over your you know young dog's head when in training it's one or two or maybe three, and you've built up to that, right? So he's great with a, a shotgun over his head, but that's one. Now or it's now out in the boom, field. Boom, 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 boom. And he doesn't even see the duck coming, and he's just getting rattled. So, yeah. So really be aware of what you're introducing this dog to and you're you're still teaching in that first season.
1: Yep. And the other thing is for God's sake stop burning your dog when it's not doing what you want it to do because you know if you're burning the dog for a disciplinary thing, you're creating a hot spot out there in that water like you built a wall And you can burn him all in front of your blind or in the water in front of you, wherever you're hunting, and uh, you burn him too many times out there, then you've you've heard everybody say it. Oh, he won't go in the water anymore. Well, you created it. You you built a wall all around your boat or your blind because your dumbass burned the dog, you know, when it broke or whatever. Teach the dog first. Right train don't complain
0: absolutely yeah i think that's the i think if anyone can take anything away from this books whatever is train the dog train the dog teach the, these are animals who love what they do but they're still a dog And they don't just learn because you said to do it once. They have to have repetition and positive reinforcement along with pressure, right? Yeah. They they have to understand black and white, right and wrong, but you can't just go to pressure is not always the answer. Correction is not always the answer.
1: Absolutely. And when you're talking about pressure anymore, as I get more experienced in training, I realize that. A longer duration on a lower intensity teaches that dog to turn the pressure off himself and to have the choice that he's going to turn it off either by not going back to that area or motivating him to go with it whatever you're doing with it but a lower intensity level at a longer time frame makes that dog understand that he can make the decision himself then he owns mentally owns the decision and the training that you're trying to teach him. Therefore, owning it, he's more happy to go or do whatever it is you're teaching rather than burn him off of it, burn him hard to go. Brah! You hear him screaming. All you're doing is creating hot spots, and pretty soon that same screaming dog isn't going to go at all for you.
0: Right. Couldn't agree more. Yep. Couldn't agree more, and I think a lot of people have high expectations for their young dog in their first season. And when the dog doesn't meet those expectations, they get disappointed, aka frustrated, aka pissed off, aka harsh correction.
1: Yeah, I then know. You go to the burning, and your buddies are there, and you're embarrassed.
0: I know. When I started with my old dog, my first dog, I would lose my patience probably too often. Right. And I was, Mm -hmm. I'm thankful that he was a resilient dog and a loving dog and a forgiving dog. But I remember making mistakes and things I don't do now, wouldn't do now, would never encourage someone to do now. And it was because I had him on this pedestal that wasn't fair. You know what I mean? Yeah. And you know, that comes with time and experience, but if this podcast can teach someone something, it's, hey, your 10-month-old dog that you've been working with all year, you know, show them, relax, teach them. You're out here having fun.
1: Yep. Absolutely. Yep.
0: Well, Trish, I promised you we would be done at 8, and it's now 8.15, so my bad. Um, I would like you to maybe give uh, a final thought and tell everyone how they can find you so that if they are in the Virginia area or South Carolina area and maybe are looking for a puppy and you know you could be a resource for them, uh, how, how do they get in, in touch with you?
1: Well, uh, I don't know if you want me to give my phone number out, but no, uh, no,
0: probably not a phone number,
1: no, but uh, I have a website and and it's just silver brook dot com b-r-o-o-k with no e that's my kennel name silverbrook and uh i also have email which is uh, trish at silver dot com i am absolutely happy to answer anybody's questions ever and i do a lot sometimes it'll take me a couple days but i will get back to you and uh, then once you do uh contact me that way i'll be happy to call you or you can call me once you you know once I feel comfortable with it, I just wouldn't want my phone number out or, you know, people like you, Bob might know it and call me
0: <laughs> and bother you. <laughs> I agree. Hey, if anyone, I mean, Trish has been doing this. Like she said, she was the first person to run a hunt test. She's an AKC representative for hunt tests. She knows dogs in and out. I can't thank her enough for participating with the podcast and, telling some cool stories and sharing everything that she knows with you all. Um, Please, if you feel necessary, reach out to her, send your dog to her, grab a puppy from her, and uh, I I can't thank you enough, Trish. Our friendship means the world to me, and I am looking forward to the next time we get to run a test together.
1: Awesome. Uh, Same here, and uh, I'll tell everybody to try to look us up this summer because – you and I are talking about doing something really cool for maybe a Saturday-Sunday kind of seminar thing up there at uh, in uh, Mexico. So I'd You're love right. to see as many people as possible.
0: Absolutely. That's a good, quick little way to finish it. We are going to be doing hunt test prep, training tips, uh, a, a weekend seminar. Um, so more details to come. But... Trish is a phenomenal resource. So Trish, thank you so much. And, uh, we'll talk with you soon. Hey, join our community. If you enjoy the show, if you enjoy our YouTube, if you enjoy Instagram, it's like buying me and Kevin a beer, join patreon.com forward slash Lone Duck Outfitters. The link is in the description. Click that link, join the community. We've got tons of great videos, tons of great content, and you can ask me more questions. So join it, enjoy it. We did it for you, and you're helping us produce this show. So thank you so much to that community. Get in, get out, let's roll. Patreon.com forward slash Lone Duck Outfitters. i <laughs>